Benvenuti, everyone. This is Ethan and Maddie here for another episode of the Vine to Mind podcast. Hello, everybody. And if you didn't catch it by Ethan's intro, we are going to Italy today. We are going to be talking about Asti and Moscato de Asti, DOCGs. We hope you enjoy. So another beautiful day here in the Napa Valley, Maddie. Mm-hmm. I mean, what happened to winter? I think we had about one month. December was quite chilly and rainy. And ever since, I mean, we are looking outside right now. The trees, I mean, the colors are beautiful, but the trees are blossoming. We have mustard in the vineyards. The rosemary is even blossoming. The colors are just amazing. I feel like I just took my sweaters out. Now I got to like put them back. Yeah, I'm not complaining. I mean, we could use more rain, obviously, but it's gorgeous. (laughs) Anyway, you got rain, send it over here. Um, But, you know, it's been a while since we talked about, like, what is, like, what are we working on in terms of, like, alcohol? Like, I know, like, we're always drinking something (laughs) new, trying something new. I know you're very creative, like, with these amazing breads that you make. You've been pickling a lot of stuff. Sure. Yeah, actually, I need to get back in the pickling game. I've been slacking on that. But I think I've been focusing more of my energy with my Meyer lemon tree. I have uh-huh. one at home and it is like out the wazoo. I've told it. all the neighbors, please come take. There's hundreds of these. I don't even know how old the tree is, but um, everything. I've made lemon cake. I've made lemonade, all the like Meyer lemon Collins cocktails. I mean, Ooh. whatever. But of course, when you have lemons, you have to do limoncello, right? Uh, so this is actually my second year doing it and it's kind of fun. Apparently, I've learned a thing or two about it. Um, first off, it's a little bit easier to buy Everclear this year than it was a year ago. FYI for all of you Everclear <laughs> drinkers. I've been waiting for this moment. Uh, and you know why? It's because a lot of it a year ago was being used for hand sanitizer. Um, oh. and when I went to the liquor store in town, yeah, they were like, ah, oh, you just got it. We just got it on the shelves. And I was <laughs> like, oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, there's a couple different proofs, but, um, uh-huh. obviously it's very high proof and it's best to use lemons a little bit earlier in the season. So when they're fresh and they're just ripe, the longer they, you know, they sit on the bush or on the tree or whatnot, not at the aromas and flavors won't be quite as fresh. So anyway, you just peel them. Traditional limoncello is supposed to be made with Sorrento lemons. Mm-hmm. But I don't have It's protected. Those. Yeah. Uh-huh. So Meyer lemon will do. Um, but anyway, yeah, just peel them. You try not get, to get too much of the pith in there. Let it sit for about, I guess it was like four or five weeks or so. And then you just make a simple syrup. And that was the fun part because I looked up a couple of different recipes. And I mean, I've had limoncello before. And it's normally insanely sweet. It's just like a syrup. But when you're making it yourself, you can kind of control that a little bit. So for better or for worse, mine's not – I mean, it's still sweet. But it's not like – you know, it's not like a syrup, but that also probably means it's a little bit stronger, but that's okay. It's going to last, I think, for a very long time. So what do you do with it? Do you like sip, with, sip on it after dinner? Or? Yeah, I think that's the idea. Okay. I, I want to experiment a little more with cocktails because mm-hmm. just by itself, it's there's kind of a lot, but it's crazy how much lemon extract comes. I mean, obviously it's, you know, it was steeping for a while and having that high alcoholic environment, of course, you're going to extract more flavors and aromas because of that. Um, but yeah, so if you want some limoncello, I'll, I'll bring some in for you. Please do. Yeah. I look a little sketchy and like a little vile or something, but my mom loves it, which is, it's funny because you know her drinking habits and I I love you mom very much, but you know, she just loves Chardonnay. She's very simple. Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, maybe a Pinot Grigio. Doesn't really care where it's coming from. Um, but after dinner, when we go out, when I visit her, like she's always getting limoncello, which like, that's like diesel fuel sometimes like you get a light of match to your mouth and you're gonna blow yeah. fire and i'm usually getting like sambuca and she'll sit mine and like almost throw up and i'm like say. there's no difference just <laughs> i guess flavor it depends on what you like but. yeah but we should get creative we should start making some cocktails with it because i got a lot of it absolutely so you also have a fig tree in your yard i do and the plums i have, like Could an orchard you, can you make like a slow gin 
Oh, I should look into the that. Figs, figs are, or oh, the plums? Yeah. Yeah, the plums. Honestly, I should try it because it's within a span of 10 days, hundreds fall at once. And it's like, you cannot eat them fast enough. I tried making jam and plum cake and plum chicken and all the plums, but it's, it was crazy. They're all over the place. So. Pusheron. The bass, that bass drink. It's like a typically a homemade so thing right. anyway. It's like basically related to plums. It's like plums, vanilla, coffee. Maddie, we're on to something. All right. So it'll be in a few months. It's typically like June is when they all fall. So, all right. Everyone stay tuned about our Pacheron concoction. Do you need a license to make like liqueurs and stuff? You Maybe don't because technically... you're saying it on the podcast right now and it's out <laughs> to the open, but uh, I think beforehand we would have been in the clear. Yeah, you just make it for home use. But um, that's interesting because, you know, I, I think about it, like some of these places that like make Pacheron and stuff like that, like to protect areas, you can buy Pacheron. We bought a Pacheron a couple months ago. Yeah. But it's Maybe not distilled. You call it Pacheron. Yeah. You'd have that's to call why it's protected. Like, but like, it's, per, called, yeah. it, it's not distilled. You're not. You're mixing things. You're not necessarily making it. If as long as it never leaves the premise, I think we're okay. This is basically what Maddie and I do every day. We ask like <laughs> open-ended questions, and that's most of our days. So that sounds really cool, Maddie. That sounds like a lot of great things that you're up to this uh, this early spring. <laughs> and I'm, I'm excited I to have try been productive some of this. beyond the the alcoholic beverages. That is just that's just this podcast. So that's yes. what decided that you that of me that you all hear. So. You don't even drink. This is just a show that you put on. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a front. Yeah. Uh, no. What about you? Any fun projects or? No. You know, I'm always. I've been kind of. You know, I like going against the grain sometimes of like going, mm. it's like the traditional beverages sometimes, you know, we're like, especially with like my spirits, you've seen my, my bar cart. It's, you it's, need two. I need two. Honestly, it's like a little over the top. I, I, I have to like hide things when people come over because I don't want them to judge me. I'm like not always drinking them. I'll sip on them, taste them because it's unique stuff. Like I have like two Indian whiskeys, a Japanese whiskey, got like three different types of tequila, but you know me and I love whiskey, um, especially scotch. Isla Scotch, which like yeah. as you know is like the peatiest of all scotches. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a few producers, and I got a bottle recently um, that is a non-peated Scotch from Isla. So it's like going against the grain, going against tradition. It's more of like a modern producer, or yeah, but it's just it's unique because it's like it's really it's it it's an emphasis more on like like the terroir and like Scotland's like windy and cold and like especially Isla. When I'm sipping this, there's like so much going on. Like it's traditionally it tastes like smoked scotch, but like it's more of like um, a briny, mm. seaweedy. Like it's almost like a salty aftertaste. Like not only am I experiencing the terroir and like the nose, but like even on the palate, which I think is so unique, especially for like a distilled beverage. So um, sip it on that every once in a while. That sounds super interesting. I'm enjoying it. Maybe you'll have to bring a vial and we'll do a little vial trade. I'll give you limoncello. I'll Love take that. some of that. I've also been obsessed with a certain kind of beer, but we're going to talk about for our nightcap. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. I am excited to hear more about that. I've heard the name a lot, so <laughs> <laughs> you can tell us all. But uh, what do you say? Should we get into uh, Asti? Let's do Asti. So, okay. So we are talking about a really fun wine, and I think something that we've all heard of Moscato, and I think we all have a certain, you know, probably style in mind when we think of Moscato, just the grape. But we're going to go to Italy. More specifically, we are going to Northwest Italy. We are going to Piedmont. And this is where um, you're going to find um, two regions in particular, very similar. We're going to talk about them kind of synonymously, and then we'll talk about the differences. But that is Osti, D-O-C-G, and Moscato to Osti, D-O-C-G. When I say D-O-C-G, that is essentially um, a designated growing region and wine style protected by the Italian government, um, both high quality wines. Absolutely. And so... Um, this is essentially sparkling wine. It's going to be a little bit lower in alcohol, made from Moscato, uh, Moscato Bianco, uh, Moscato Blanc, a petit grain. 
Uh, this is going to be the grape. So it's from Moscato. As you guys know, and I'm sure you've all had that grape before. Um, but overall, like Asti is large. Uh, this area makes a lot of wine. Um, it's about 650,000 hectoliters. And I just had Ethan do some math and he converted that to how many cases? It's like 2.7 million. 7.2 million. Wow. <laughs> Got my numbers backwards. But yeah. 7.2 million cases. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, yeah. It's actually the largest producer of DOCG wine in all of Italy. So, I mean, there's other DOCGs like Chianti Classico, right? Um, there's Barolo, um, Brunello di Montalcino. Um, Asti DOCG is by far the longest, largest. That's pretty remarkable, Maddie, because I feel like uh, Moscato sometimes can be like very overlooked in some of our like study groups and like tasting groups, but like it's everywhere. Yeah. There's so many, like not even just Moscato de Asti or Asti wines in general, but like it's such a well-known variety and often like, yes, it could be sweeter and floral, but like there are some very high quality examples like from Asti mm-hmm. and from Moscato de Asti that are, are great, like after dinner drinks, before dinner drinks. It's fun. It's very versatile. Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, so this grape here, like you just said, and I think it's very important to hone in on this. Um, here in the States, I think a lot of the Moscato that's produced, there's, I mean, there's some, again, high quality Moscato here, but oftentimes it's considered or kind of associated with cheaper, more bulk styles that are simple, floral, aromatic, and sweet, which yes, those are, you know, some characteristics of this grape, but there are some beautiful, complex styles and it's okay to like sweet wines too. I think that's something that's important. Absolutely. Who doesn't like sugar? Yeah, that's true. Like really. That's like, true. I've got the biggest sugar. sweet tooth of us all. So you want to talk a little bit about like the characteristics of the Moscato grape itself? Absolutely. So first and foremost, it is the most planted grape variety in Piedmont. So you think of Piedmont automatically, you think of like, oh my gosh, Nebbiolo, Barbera. No, actually Moscato is the most widely planted grape there. It's also one of the oldest grape varieties that we know of in the world. Um, it's like the OG grape variety. And we know for a fact it is the oldest grape variety in Piedmont. Cool thing, too. Like, yes, it makes some great still wines and sparkling wines, but it also makes phenomenal vermouths. And um, I know somebody here loves vermouth, <laughs> so I know she's excited to hear yeah, that. Go back a few episodes and you'll hear that rant. <laughs> As you mentioned, it is filled with so many aromatic compounds. I mean, it is so aromatic. I mean, you could smell it from across the room and it's pretty. It smells like flowers and peaches and oranges. And it's like, it smells sweet, but it smells good. It doesn't just smell like sugar. It smells mm-hmm. like so many things going on. Every time you stick your nose in a glass of Moscato, like you can pick out something else. Um, you know, it's an early budding grape, which is good because you know, Piedmont doesn't always have like the easiest weather to deal with for the growing season from the fog, from the hail, from the precipitation, um, mid ripening. So like, it's pretty easy to deal with and the berries are relatively smaller as well. Um, now there are some issues in the vineyard too. Like it's, it's prone to mildew and the fact that it smells and tastes so good. Like, <laughs> everything wants to eat it like every kind of pest myself included yeah well that's the funny thing is like you can go out and taste a cab grape like it doesn't always taste like cab like you can have like a moscato grape it actually it tastes like a moscato wine so like there's not a lot of grapes like that that taste like that before they're fermented so you can imagine like everybody everything loves sweet things so you know birds are all over moscato so um bees wasp especially if they're like crushed open and that sugary juice is like exposed i mean they'll swarm because of like how much sugar and and, and how it smells it's just it's an it's an amazing grape variety 
No, it, it really is. And, it, you know, it does it does really well in this region. There's a reason that why it's been grown here for so long, and now it is the most widely planted grape. Um, Piedmont is going to be, you know, like I said, it's in northwest Italy. They have a moderate continental climate. They have cold winters, hot, dry summers. Um, there's also, you know, some beautiful hillsides, and, you know, there's even, like, mountains to the north. But for us here, we're talking about these grapes grown really within three provinces. It's Asti, Alexandria, and Cuneo. And within these provinces, Moscato really prefers to be grown on limestone and clay soils. The limestone really allows for the most aromatic grapes possible. And so with that, you typically want to be on the hillsides. You get more sunlight. So again, it's a little bit chillier here. And the one thing that's really unique about Moscato is that um, I think it does do a better job of retaining some of that natural acidity, acidity than some other aromatic grapes. Um, for instance, I don't want to hit on Gewürztraminer, but Gewürztraminer is another very aromatic grape but it loses its acidity on the vines very quickly. And that's one of the hallmarks of this wine. Like you taste it and it's, you know, it's very aromatic, but with Gewürztraminer, it just drops off, right? Because you don't have a ton of that acidity. With Moscato, we really want to retain that. And so with that limestone soils and having these, you know, hot days, cool nights, we're able to retain that a little bit more here as well. So um, as far as like in the vineyard goes, um, typically in Piedmont, we're going to harvest these grapes um, early to mid September. The nice thing is, is we want to, we're able to harvest this before the rains come in October um, and November and whatnot, where some of the other grapes grow in Piedmont, such as Nebbiolo, uh, sometimes they take a little bit longer to ripen. So we don't have to worry about that, those risks really with Moscato. Now, I mentioned there's two different areas that grow these grape Moscato and they make Moscato. It's Asti and it's Moscato d'Asti. Um, they are different styles and we'll talk about that. Um, Asti grapes typically are going to be harvested earlier. Moscato d'Asti, you're going to be harvested later. The idea is you want a higher aromatic intensity. Of course, you're having, you're going to, the longer the grapes stand the vines, you're going to have increased risk because like Ethan said, there's different pests and potentially some harmful weather. However, if you're able to take what good care of these grapes, this intensity that you're able to achieve by keeping these grapes in the vines really is, is one of a kind and is why these wines are on really the world stage as far as Moscato goes. Absolutely. And, you know, I know you're going to touch on this in just a moment, like how it's made, but like sitting in, you know, in front of the one that we have right now, it, it has all those aromatics and it's, it's slightly sweet, but it's almost like they made it's made to be this way. And oftentimes wines aren't supposed to be like sweet or not usually made sweet, but like it almost is like emphasized. All of this that they did in the vineyard is emphasized with this a little bit of residual sugar that's left. Oh, absolutely. And that's so much character to this absolutely. wine. Absolutely. Um it's really necessary. Um actually it's the government <laughs> regulates how much sugar is in these wines. Um that's so crazy. definitely is a part of this um the style. So as far as production goes, so it's ready to harvest. Chances are you're hand harvesting everything especially for your, your higher quality wines because you're on steep hillsides and you want to be very gentle with these grapes. So you're going to bring, you harvest the grapes, bring them in, press them right off the bat, and you're going to clarify the must. So essentially any solids that might be in, in the juice, you're going to rack those off. Now this is what's very, this next step is what's very interesting in which I think it sets this style of wine apart from almost any other winemaking style. So essentially they're going to take this must, put it into a tank, and then they're going to chill that tank down. I mean, they'll chill it to, you know, maybe like 36, 37 degrees. It's just above freezing. And so essentially now this juice, this grape must, 
is now maintaining its freshness and is really ready to go and undergo fermentation whenever we're ready for it. However, it can stay in these tanks for up to two years. So you might wonder why in the world are, why haven't you started fermentation yet, right? I mean, almost any other wine producing region, any other producer is going to immediately start fermentation. If it's not, you know, right off the same day the grapes are pressed, it's going to be within a couple of days, right? Yeah. But the idea is because Moscato, I mean, the, so much of its character is driven by that fresh floral fruit aromas, they want to maintain that freshness. So by keeping it in these tanks and keeping it very, very chilled, they are able to kind of regulate when the, they want to release this wine on the market. So say, you, you know, like you've already, you already made, say you make some right off the bat. And I'll explain that process here in a minute. You want to wait till that lot has been sold. And then once you're kind of running low on inventory there, well, then you can start making some more wine because then you can maintain this freshness. So no matter when this wine is released, the consumer is having the best possible product. So why aren't other regions doing this? You know, I think it's really just based on this style itself mm -hmm. and with Moscato. I mean, with Moscato, you want that fresh and you want that vibrancy. But, you know, other grape varieties, yes, that's that's part of it. You want the freshness in a Sauvignon Blanc. However, it's it's not going to – that will hold a little bit longer in the bottle, whereas once Moscato is bottled, it's typically not considered an age-worthy wine necessarily. Interesting. I wonder if, you know, those who save the wine for up to two years – I wonder if it must change a little bit. The I'm character. sure it will. Yeah. I'm sure you lose some of that freshness. So like that, like that floral, floral quality, you know, I'm sure you get more of that like nuttiness too, as you do yeah. with a lot of white wines, but it would be interesting. I mean, Hey, we've got, we've got some bottles here. We can start aging it ourselves, I guess. Absolutely. But, um, but yeah, so, okay. Of course, you know, we still have to make the wine. So say, you know, whenever you are ready to start producing the wine, um, you will take that, that juice and um, you start your fermentation. So essentially, you are going to warm up that juice or the must uh, when required by demand. And you're going to put this into a pressurized tank. And so you're going to add your yeast. And um, typically, you're going to start fermentation. Initially, right off the bat, that sugar is going to be fermented into alcohol. And of course, CO2 is released. That's a byproduct of fermentation. Well, you're able to release the valve. It's a pressurized tank. But you're able to release the valve. And you are going to allow some CO2 to escape the tank. Now, the winemaker at the same time is going to be monitoring the sugar levels. As the sugar levels are dropping, you have alcohol that's being created, and now you have CO2 that's leaving the tank. Well, this wine is still a sparkling wine. So depending on the style that you're making and how the percent of alcohol that's desired and the amount of bubbles that are desired, the winemaker will have, you know, kind of their, their timing here. Well, they will shut the valve at the tank and then continue fermentation. Now, this is going to create the bubbles, right, that we love in sparkling wine. And so those bubbles are now going to be integrated into the wine. And then, again, the winemaker is still monitoring, you know, every step of the way. And then they are going to halt the fermentation. Moscato is not going to be a dry wine. If they let it ferment all the way through, you're going to have a dry wine. And that is, I'll talk about that a little bit at the end. Um, but for the most part, all these wines are going to have some residual sugar. So what they do is they cool the temperature of the tank down. And then they filter off the yeast cells, meaning that there can be no further fermentation taking place. Additionally, they're going to try to for, um, filter this wine so under pressure so that there's not going to be any malolactic um, fermentation that's undergone as well. Because again, you want to maintain those fresh aromas rather than having some additional secondary aromas that will you know, be created over time. It seems like a very highly regulated production. Yeah, exactly. And this is when, 
you know, the experience and the expertise of a winemaker really comes in. Because if you if you and I were just to go out and make this, yes, we can read about this all day long, but it's really, it's seeing this vintage after vintage and time on time again of saying, okay, when we hit this level of bricks or when the sugars reach this point, we need to halt the fermentation or we need to close the valve of this tank or whatnot. But you also need to know what style of wine you're trying to make. I've said this many times now, Osti DOCG is different than Moscato to Osti DOCG. Really, the difference is... Osti is typically going to be between 6 and 8% alcohol, and it will be um, spumante, meaning that it's fully sparkling. Mm. Now, Moscato de Osti DOCG is going to be lower in alcohol. Interesting. It's going to be 45 to 6.5% alcohol. Oh, that's a big difference. It may not sound that big, but Ethan, mm. you're right. It it's is a big difference. A Bud Light between an IPA is big. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And so the idea being is that because Moscato de Asti has a lower alcohol, mm -hmm. it is going to have more residual sugar. Also, these wines are considered frizzante, which means partially sparkling. So the idea being is, yes, there's still plenty of bubbles, like the one we have in front of us. There's still definitely a nice effervescence to this wine. Oh, yeah. And I would consider this a sparkling wine. It's not just a little like, you know, screw cap spritz that there might be in some, you know, wines from New Zealand or whatever. But... This wine definitely is sparkling. However, the bubbles are not quite to the extent of an Osti. And yeah. the idea being that, again, the higher quality grapes are used from Moscato to Osti. And those are the, the aromas are really shining through in this wine. Whereas Osti, because there's more bubbles, it can sometimes cover up some more of the faults if there are any in the wine. So just a fair warning, folks, for those who are inspired after this podcast and you go buy a bottle of Moscato de Asti, um, it's most likely not closed with a crown cap like most sparkling wines. So it's going to have a cork. Uh, just don't be scared when it pops because it does pop a little <laughs> bit. Like I opened one recently and pop. Yeah, right, no, right, for right, sure. Right. There's a lot of pressure in these bottles oh, still. Yeah. And typically, I mean, yeah, it depends. I mean, sometimes these wines will be in a traditional sparkling wine bottle. For the most part, they will be, but there are some that look like it's just a regular cork and then, whoa, it pops out pretty darn quickly, like the one we're enjoying right now. So, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, you know, so it's, that's really the idea here is that we have, um, you know, like I said, Osti DOCG is that's the really widely um, produced one. You know, Martini Rossi is probably a brand that we've all been familiar with. They're the one mm -hmm. of the largest producers. There's really four main producers in this region that really um, take control of most of the production here. But these wines, again, are going to be um, a little bit more sparkling, still very floral and aromatic, still really beautiful wines. But if you want the true expression of a terroir in the place, Moscato de Asti is really where the quality is shown. You know, I think this is a um, one the wine in the region. I feel like this is taken for granted. It really is because think of like the other wines that are produced in this area. There's Barolo. There's Barbaresco. There's some some of the most renowned wines in the world. Just east of those regions is where you'll find Osti, where these wines are produced. And I can't think, Manny. I'm trying to think right now. Like I can't think of any other region in Italy that make wine this way, or in like play the world like that's like regulated to do this it's like a it's a specialized winemaking technique and winemaking style that really to me doesn't exist yeah i think that's cool i know and i honestly i, I kind of would read about this methodology for a while and i kind of like understood it enough it sounds bad but i understood it enough to like answer the right questions on an exam mm -hmm. <laughs> but to actually understand like the fact that like, okay they're gonna harvest these grapes and put them in the tank, like the must, and then just leave it there. Um, that's like, that's unheard of, like you were just saying. And I will say too, 
Only certain producers have the ability to do that. If you think about that, that is a high investment. You have to have the extra tank yeah. space. You have to have the power and like the refrigeration and whatnot. So like that is, oh, that's a high investment upfront, but that means, you know, the wine that you're going to be, you know, putting out in the market will typically maintain its freshness too. And that's why there's a lot of cooperatives in that area too, There right? are. They're because the shared barrel space, because you don't really have to, you could chill that down to really need to use it. So don't take up all your capacity in your storage room. Mm-hmm. Use a co-op. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. And you know, what's cool. I was so obviously reading more about this and just going down the rabbit hole. And uh, I was reading about like, you know, back in the day, like Moscato de Asti was actually like the wine that the winemakers made for themselves. <laughs> and cool. I love that. And I think that, you know, it kind of like, it was like, oh, it's this like fresh, sweet wine. And it has this nice, like refreshing quality to it. And I'm like, you know, I think it's so funny because we oftentimes, we've talked about this before, but a lot of times people that think they, they are trying to impress people when they talk about wine and they say they don't drink any sweet wines because they think that's kind of novice. Oh, I'll drink this From, all day long. We love, what, what do we love? We love Riesling, mm-hmm. right? Like we love Rieslings with a little bit of residual sugar. Oh yeah. I absolutely love this wine right here. And also like in Italy, this was drank or this was consumed quite a bit like at midday lunches because it's a little bit lower in alcohol. And so you don't have to like go have your little siesta. You can still go back to work and still be somewhat productive. So I mean, I'm mean, granted we're just tasting right now and not really indulging at all. However, if you were to, maybe you would you'd still be okay. I like the way you think, Maddie. Um, I think it's a great after dinner drink too. Yeah. I mean, it's refreshing. I love the fact that there is carbonation. I love it mm-hmm. because you know I think it one it emphasizes the aromatics, but it, it makes it like. I think it helps balance out the sugar. Like even for those who don't like sugary wines, there's not a lot of sugar in this wine. Yeah. This is like a very classic example of a Moscato de Asti, but that 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 spritziness, I feel like kind of plays the same role as like what acidity does. It helps balance that sugar. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. It's it's beautifully balanced here. This is the Chiretto Moscato Dossi that we've been talking about here too, folks. Uh, definitely go grab a bottle and, um, and try that out. But you made, made a good comment. So it's great after dinner. But I think, say say you had a, you know, a big meal, you have this. I feel like not only, I mean, it could serve as your dessert or it could serve as like the appetizer to your dessert. Like it's almost like stimulates Ooh. your appetite again for dessert, for better, for worse. Like maybe you're trying to cut the sweets and maybe that's not the best idea. But um, but yeah, I think that, that that definitely adds that extra quality. Dinner at Maddie's house usually takes about five to six hours every night. <laughs> multiple courses. Multiple courses and beverages between courses. <laughs> um, yeah, no. And so Ethan, I would love to talk a little bit about some of the trends as well on like the business side with this because we look at, okay, I'm going to ask you a question here. If we look at sparkling wine in Italy, outside of Osti, what first comes to mind? Uh, Prosecco. Prosecco. Prosecco is oh, yeah. huge. And it's they've huge. been like increasing production for the last, I don't know, like 10, 15 years, just tenfold, right? And so, and you know, look at Prosecco. Yes, Prosecco has, typically has a little bit of residual sugar, yeah. but not to the extent of Osti. And so actually, the government just changed um, some laws here with Osti. And now there's different ranges. So you can actually make drier versions of Osti. Oh, that's cool. So they are actually reflecting on, okay, well, we want to make sure we're still you know, prevalent in the marketplace. What do we need to do? If people are shying away from you know sweeter things, well, we can make this a little bit drier. And even there is Osti Metodo Classico. So oh, interesting. this is actually aged for nine months on the leaves in the bottle. And so um, that adds a whole another layer of complexity. I've never had that before. And I would love to see that Autolysis character mm-hmm. with a Moscato grape. 
too, but that was just recently allowed. And those have to be sweeter, right? Uh, they do. Yeah. They must be Dolce, um, which is above 50 grams per liter. That's so unique because, you know, we don't find a lot of sweet champagnes on the market. They used to be so much more popular. And like really the original champagnes or sparkling wines produced were sweet. But like you and I had a recent like demi-sec yeah, champagne. It's delicious. like, it's so unique because like how the sweetness plays with the uh, autolysis character. It's actually, it, it creates this like unique aromatic that you just, it can't be competed like like can't be copied it's so unique it's almost yeah you know like when i was studying about that they said that was because that's when you add first champagne at least you're mm-hmm. adding the dosage the sugar after the fact too and it has it creates like this maillard reaction it's when the sugars react now with all like the toasty autolysis notes and that's another reason why the champagne is aged for a few more months before it's released because that's when you create these like toasty characteristics like umami sensations almost which we totally got in that wine oh yeah and we've talked about umami Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go back to episode one, I think. That's why you need to have some champagne and oysters. Um, Absolutely. But uh, I mean, yeah, this wine is beautiful. I hope you guys have had a chance to enjoy it. I mean, uh, it definitely is a shining star of Piedmont. Maddie, this has been awesome. I think you've kind of like, there's like a bunch of light bulbs just going off in my head right now. I think you've brought light to this this historic region that's so unique and unlike any other to these beautiful wines. Um I'm I'm gonna go out and get another bottle of this. I I can think of a million things that I can do with this, let alone just sit on my couch, watch some Netflix, and drink half this bottle with my girlfriend. I mean, it's just refreshing and, and delicious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just about any style of like a lighter dessert or with like mm. stone fruit. I mean, we're about to get we're getting into springtime. I mean, this is the perfect springtime wine. So so anyway, Ethan, I that's enough about Moscato Dossi. If you guys have questions or comments. Please reach out because obviously I can go on and on here. But I know you are very excited about your nightcap. I'm excited to hear you talk about this. So please take it away. Yeah, let me let me pour you some real quick. Okay. Yeah, that's uh so this is cool. I mean it looks like wine. We're putting we're putting this in a wine glass. Um is this how you're supposed to drink it? Um, you know, Maddie, that's a good question. Um we'll get back to you on that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> However you'd like to, I guess. So I have a, a really, really good friend of mine who um, is probably obsessed with beer as much as I am obsessed with wine. And I, I love beer. I, I think I drink beer uh, on a regular basis. I think it really helps keep my palate fresh. There's so many cool styles of beer out there, especially now. You go to the you know, you go to the local beer shop out here, Maddie, there's like 15 million different choices. They're so unique. And there's like gummy worms and slushies and smoothies. Yeah. Type. Like it's, it's crazy. And like as, you know, Recently, even though you know it's just getting warmer, I've been loving these sour beers that have been new, newer to me. I mean, they've sure. been around for a while, like the Ghosts and stuff like that. Um, but I just love that like acidic character and like sour to me, like higher acidity things activate your sour taste buds. I love sour, um, and sour beers are becoming super popular. Seems like everybody out here is making one. Um, so I had a friend of mine, the same friend, who introduced me to this beer, and this is a lambic. So this is what we're drinking, folks, uh, tonight as our nightcap it is a lambic which is it's a sour beer but it's it's considered a spontaneous sour beer so most sour beers are created like on purpose um where you're adding something called lactobacillus which is basically like a it's like a yogurt culture per se it's like what makes yogurt um it's added to the mash after it's been boiled so it creates that like it raises the acidity it's a type of lactic acid um and it makes that sour character in a beer and then you can add like whatever fruits and whatnot to make that unique to yourself as a producer um but it's on purpose most beers that are made are on purpose 
this is a um, just a natural thing that happens, and it takes a very, very long time to make. First of all, sour beers in general are hard to make. Beer in general is hard to make, but sour beers are harder. The Lambics are very challenging because there's a lot of things that go into this. First of all, you're boiling hops because hops are used as a preservative. You know this stuff, Maddie. You boil them in the mash, um, and what happens when like you get something like boiling? It's really hot. The hotter it gets, the more... Um, you know, more susceptible it is to like different bacterias and, and, and things going wrong. Um, but for something like this, you usually use a, a hop that's typically aged. Um, the ones the people that are making this, which they're making it in Belgium, it can only be made in Belgium. They're using an aged hops because what happened, it loses that like a stringent bitterness that hops mm-hmm. provides, so like a like a beer, like an, a pale ale or an IPA. So you're not using them as fresh. Um, and other beers can be made this way as well, but they're boiling and then they're act, they're they're just kind of letting things happen naturally. They let this boiled mash sit at the top of the facility in these like little pools basically overnight to cool down, to which then fermentation begins. Um, and other people can do this, but this is what makes Lambic beer so unique because they're not act adding the lactobacillus. They're not adding any of these bacterias. Through the night of its cooling down, all of these like bacterias get absorbed into this beer. Now, prior to this, they did, I'm not going to get into like the nitty gritty details about this because we'll be talking forever, but they basically do like micro fermentations before they allow this to happen. So they are like allowing some of this fermentable sugar to kind of disappear and turn into alcohol. So as you know, we talked about this in the past, there's other yeast strains, especially we're talking about Belgium here. What's like the most notable wine invasive yeast from Belgium? It's 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 Brett. Brett and all his friends. That horsey, barnyardy kind of, mm-hmm. you know, bacteria. Um, so as you imagine, it's in the air of all these breweries too. But not just those. Like there's other types of yeast strains, different bacterias, um, pediococcus, which just comes from like the diacetol, like that buttery kind of thing. And of course, the lactobacillus gets absorbed into this liquid as it cools down. Then they put it in the barrels. And that's when like that whole fermentation, the whole process, that conversion is completed and they release this beer. So it's like you have a lot of things going Jeez. on here. Yeah. So you're having like a sour beer that was made spontaneously, made naturally. You're getting a lot of bread. Like you get Band-Aid. There's acetobacter in here, Maddie. So you're getting that like VA. There's like a little bit of that vinegary kind of smell. To me, it's it's like a beer that wants to be a wine. If you're following me here. It's it's unique. It's acidic. It's got a lot of bread on it. It's sour. It is sour. And I, I'm not the big – I mean, I don't, I don't mind sours. I just You know me. I'm not like the typically – I don't drink a ton of beer myself. I would like to get more into it. But I feel like sometimes sours can just be like sipping on a warhead and just so much. But this here, I mean, it's so acidic. And I feel like that maybe that little bit of bread too like kind of helps mellow out the sourness too. It's very interesting. It's very unique. It, this is a beer that like I can – Easily just drink this like a regular beer. Um, I'd love to have this with food. I like to experiment with this. I can't even begin to like explain like the actual details that go into this. I don't know about beer as much as I know about like spirits and wine, but it's fun to just like research how this is made, the history behind it. I mean, again, it's made in Belgium, has to be made in Belgium. When I think you're going to Belgium soon at some point, right, Maddie? I mean, yeah. well, I hope so. You're, if you do, you're going to have to bring back some Lambics for me because they're so different. Like sometimes they can be really young. There's different like classifications based on like how they're blended of different ages. Um, it's a beer that can age. I mean, this one says it can be aged till, enjoy till 2030. Yeah, that's wild. Most beers, like if I'm going to go buy a beer, like a regular beer at a store tonight, 
they're going to probably want me to enjoy it soon, especially like IPAs where you want the hops to be fresh. But like this develops. And my friend who really introduces to me, and it's good to have friends that know you that are geeky about certain things. Mm-hmm. He brought one that he's been aging for like eight years. And it was like lazy at the bottom. It was like super turbid as this one is too. It was funky. And like we noticed that like at the top of the bottle, Maddie, it was fruity. It was like pineapple and cherry. But as we got lower, the color got darker and it got funkier and funkier. Interesting. It's so unique because it's like it's almost like a kombucha beer. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I mean, it's in like a – I mean, you got – I don't know however many ounces are in this one. But it looks like a like a half a champagne bottle essentially. You know, so it had the cork top and everything. Yeah. So, yeah, this is awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing, Ethan. Um, you're welcome. You're broadening my beer horizons here. <laughs> so uh, I really appreciate it. Um, folks, uh, go out and find a Lambic.